Ladies and gentlemen, one, two, three, four. Want to be better, richer, happier? Of course you do. Welcome to the Be Less Crap podcast. Let's go. A podcast devoted to helping you become a less mediocre human. With your host, very much a work in progress herself, Charlotte Sherston. Hello and welcome. My name is Charlotte and this is the Be Less Crap podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about anxiety um, and its very close friend, worry. And who better to do that with than a doctor of clinical psychology and founder of the Anxiety Clinic, Dr. Jody Lowinger. Dr. Jody, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, now, while most of us have, have sort of experienced, probably experienced some of the symptoms and side effects of anxiety, I'd love to just kick off by explaining exactly what is anxiety, because it's a word that seems to be so overused now in the vernacular. So, you know, if you could just explain a little bit about what anxiety is, how it can kind of bugger things up for us, and, and also how it can actually be rather helpful, um, even though it might not obviously seem so. Absolutely. So anxiety is our physiological reaction to perceived threat in our environment. So an example of a perceived threat might be a worry thought. Let's say we worry that we're not going to fit in at a party. So that's an example of a worry story that is a perceived threat for us. It triggers what's called the fight or flight reaction, which is adrenaline and cortisol and a surge of neurochemicals through our bloodstream. That is our body responding to a worry thought or a perceived threat as if it's a real threat, as if there's something dangerous that's about to attack. And so that's why anxiety can have quite a physiological experience in our body. It is the fight or flight reaction at play. And, and the fight or flight is something that gets mentioned all the time. Um, and we'll sort of dig into this a bit later with some of the safety behaviors that you talk about in your book. But do, do some people have, is, is it your one or the other or are you both? Like, do you have a sort of a tendency to fight or to flight or is it kind of intermingled? I'm always a bit confused about that. It's a fantastic question. And I think that we are any number of different things. There are so many faces of anxiety. You know, sometimes we might just be feeling this sense of agitation or sometimes it is overt fear and avoidance. So really with the mind strength methodology, which is the methodology that I've developed to help people um, who experience anxiety, but also really to help anybody to flourish and thrive. It is step one, building awareness of the many faces of the fight or flight reaction. Awareness of our fight or flight driven thoughts, feelings and actions, which typically prove to be unhelpful because it's us responding to a perceived threat as if it is real. Um, so we want to start with identifying what's going on there. Sometimes a clear indicator might be avoidance. Let's say we want to go to the party, but we're avoiding it, or we want to speak up in that work meeting, but we choose not to. So these are some of the flights in the in the fight or flight, but sometimes people might lash out and attack and it could be an underpinning of anxiety. And there's another cluster of behaviours which is all around a need for certainty and control because, in essence, what anxiety is is our discomfort with uncertainty. So things, examples here might be perfectionism or seeking reassurance or overchecking our work as some of the behavioural indicators when we're responding to these perceived threats. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that kind of, although it's obvious, it just sort of did my head in when I was reading the book. It was, 
Um, and the book's the same, it's got the same title. It's the Mind Strength Method, which is a groundbreaking approach that's helped thousands of people turn their life around. Um, and there's, there's just lots of stuff in there. It's not a typical self-help book that kind of reiterates the same thing and rinses it through every chapter. So it really does take you through four steps. And there's lots of practical information and take-homes of which we'll, we'll kind of dig into a bit later. But one of the things I thought was so weird is that, like, if, if worry is a perceived threat, it's not even, it's not even real. And yet for us, it feels so, so, so the, am I correct in saying that the worry is the thought in your brain and then anxiety is the, the, the feeling how it manifests in your body? So one's mental and one's physical? Yeah, that's a really great way to differentiate. And, and, and when we can recognize and understand worry and understand that it actually takes us down a path of making our experience worse rather than better, um, then we can, it can be really helpful to enable us to get some distance from worry as a mental process. I kind of conceptualize worry as a bit of a bully that bosses us around. And when you can start to notice the, the voice of worry and the stories it tells us and personify it, get some distance from it, then it enables us to bring our, our actions back to what is step two of the mind strength method, which is building awareness around our values or our heart-driven actions, which is the pull towards a desired direction in life. So ultimately through the mind strength method, we can build awareness around the things that are getting in the way of us living our life to flourish and thrive and the things that will help us towards living a life of flourishing and thriving. And then step three of the method is a toolkit to help you to get there. Um, step four is uh, in in um, follow-up to step three is really about sustainability. It is all about how can I maintain alignment to this pathway for the long term? So step four is all about well-being and a whole well-being frame kit, framework to help people to live their best life. So really, even though the book is targeting anxiety, it is a toolkit that will enable every single human being on this planet to live a life aligned with um, empowerment and well-being. And, and in your experience with the, with the clients that you've worked with over the years and sort of the feedback that you've got from people who've read the book, what's a realistic timeline for someone to really start making significant changes that will positively impact their life? Like it's not something that I'm going to be able to do by tomorrow if I start today. Like what would you say is realistic? I think it's absolutely realistic to have positive impact immediately. You know, we, um, there's, I get just magnificent feedback from people about the transformational impact of the methodology because it is all about changing the narrative around anxiety, around changing this sense of stigma or shame if we experience anxiety. Uh, because what I am so very 
thrilled to be able to say is that as an anxiety expert, I've worked with thousands of people who experience anxiety at all levels of severity. And the common thread for individuals, no matter whether it's mild, moderate or severe, basically what anxiety is, is this deep level of care. It is the protective instinct at play. And so people who experience it can absolutely relate to this. It is a, it's a deep caring heart it's an analytical mind and so when we change the narrative and help to recognize that anxiety really is a superpower it is an incredible strength in 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 a human being and when we can understand what that is and help an individual to move out of the fight or flight that can keep a person trapped and really realign to those core values of kindness and care and compassion and protection for ourselves, for others, for our loved ones, for our family, for our friends, for our work colleagues, um, and you embrace a toolkit that helps with alignment to that, people just absolutely um, flourish. They feel very empowered. Yeah, because one of the things, I, I, some of it's just actually the knowledge. So there's two things that I kind of take away from that is, is one, like for me, an equivalent would be when I, I read the Alan Carr's book about how to give up smoking and literally just flipping that switch from you're not giving something up, you're setting yourself free. It would like turned everything upside down for me. It wasn't going to be a horrible thing. It was going to be, yes, a really exciting thing. And I loved smoking and now I cannot bear it. Um, so it works. And, and for me, there was a lot of the similar sort of things in terms of obviously that cognitive behavior stuff. But what I found really interesting is some of, some of the things that you we might've all felt symptomatically when we, we feel what we think of as nervousness or anxiety or stress is actually our body trying to be really helpful. So like even, um, you know, I think it was the butterflies in the stomach was about um, everything rushing away from your stomach into your arms or legs, presumably so you could peg it out of there quickly. Or um, if you have a nervous poo, <laughs> that sort of diarrhea is actually your body, like your digestive system, not working as hard because it's got other stuff to do. So as soon as you, kind of read that and go, okay, that's not me. It's nothing to do with me. It's not me panicking or my body behaving awfully. It's actually just science. That's sort of, I found really helpful. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Absolutely. Anxiety is incredibly logical. And in actual fact, human behavior is actually really logical. It's really predictable. And where there's predictability and logic, we can dig deep on understanding our drivers of, of human behavior, our primitive drivers. We are wired to try and self-protect. And so anxiety is not the enemy. Anxiety is one of our most fundamental parts of being human, it is the primitive survival instinct at play. And so all of these physiological experiences that show up in different ways for different people, but ultimately there's many uh, of these, but quite uh, predictable responses in relation to the fight or flight, they are all designed to help us to survive in the case of a real threat. And so when you can start to understand anxiety, it, uh, it becomes less scary. And when it becomes less scary, then we can take ourselves out of the boxing ring with the fight or flight, which when we struggle and we hate it and we fight it and we want to get rid of it, that is actually the opposite of helpful. That keeps us, uh, keeps the fight or flight alive. So I do talk about 
acceptance being a superpower, acceptance of it, but responding with kindness and compassion to ourselves and responding to the experiences that are going on with helpful actions rather than unhelpful actions. And we can only do that when we're aware of, okay, what are these unhelpful actions and what are the helpful alternatives? So it's a very practical mind strength toolkit, which is cram-packed with practical tools and strategies to help people to realign to a pathway of their values to move forward um, and, and just flourish through life. An example yeah. of, sorry, an example of this would be um, uh, moving out of worry and moving into problem solving as, as one of the tools in the Mind Strength Toolkit. Worry just typically leading to more worry and catastrophizing and overwhelm and all sorts of unpleasant experiences, whereas problem solving is action planning around the things that are in our control. Um, a, a vastly different process to worry and one where we can feel empowered, we can learn to let go of the things that are out of our control and move into practical action around the things that are in our control. I have a rather obsessive um, to-do list habit. So if I'm feeling, start getting that, those feelings sort of bubbling up of being really overwhelmed and, and that's for me how I kind of draw it all together and take some control of that uncertainty that you talk about. Is that, is that something that is helpful in problem solving or is that like a safety behavior that I'm using like a glass of wine. I can't quite work out if it's, if it's helpful or it's kind of an obsessive behavior. Um, another brilliant question. You know, what I, I, I work with high, high performers. I'm a high performance coach to CEOs and, and C-level executives. And, and I also work with um, high performing athletes and sort of to, to really dig deep on um, building a high performance mindset. Oftentimes it's about, what are those next percenters that really enable success in, in your personal and your professional life? The reason I mentioned that is because when I'm working with these individuals, oftentimes there are things that we could call obsessive compulsive traits, right? And obsessive compulsive traits might actually facilitate our capacity for peak performance um, because they are driven by so, so this is the key to it. It's not so much about the action. It's more about what is driving your action, what underpins your action. And so it might be values aligned that say, I value being in control. I value getting, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I value getting shit done, right? And so I'm, I'm a doer and I want to be organised. And so I'm going to have my list. I'm going to keep my notes and I'm going to keep things in order and control because that is aligned to my values. And I'm going to focus on effort and, you know. I really like, yeah, that, that, I've never had it described that way. One, it makes me feel a lot better. But yeah, no, it is true that there is definitely, and then you can tip over into the kind of control freak mode, um, which, you know, I kind of try and manage my family too much, but then you can pull back and actually, it, it, as you said, it's by trying to find a way of doing it helpfully. Uh, one of the things I, I thought, thought the best in your book was your section on values, because um, you talk about um, is it heart-driven values. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so that 
I mean, for a lot of the people, values comes up a lot on this podcast. And I know it can kind of sound a bit wishy-washy to a lot of people and you Google it and you'll get a load of words like, you know, beauty and uh, control and safety and comfort. And you kind of, you know, you go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you look inside your book, you've got this really fat section of loads of values and ask whether they're very important, moderately important or not at all important. And there are loads in there that I haven't really thought of, but also they really explain them in a, so I'll give you an example of here are three in the letter C just to show what kind of different people um, uh, might, might uh, gravitate towards. So C, you might be interested in challenge. So that might be taking on situations that stretch your abilities or you might like collaboration, uh, which means you like working with other people. Or I love this one as well because it's sort of underrated, but comfort, uh, which is to have a life with physical and material ease. So, I mean, obviously you might have all three of those, but they're all quite different. Um, and I, I just found the way they're explained in the book is is really helpful. H- how many values should we sort of gravitate towards? And should we I mean, should we worry if all of them seem like a little easy, like comfort and beauty and, and the nice ones? Should we be chucking in some like harder ones? Well, we shouldn't worry, full stop, because worry serves no, no purpose, right? <laughs> um, and uh, what I talk about is there's no right or wrong. You know, it's, there's, there's no right or wrong. It's really up to the individual. It's, up to, it, it's what works for them. Um, I give kind of a ballpark just really because sometimes people who experience anxiety, are, um, you know, perfectionism is fear-driven because when I'm perfect, there's no uncertainty and so I'm not going to stuff up, right? Um, but per- perfectionism is is fear driven, and so I'm very much around embracing imperfection, being quite purposeful in just letting go of a, a need to be perfect, and so just being kind to yourself in defining your values is is a really good thing to do. I've actually produced um, a card a pack of cards which goes together with the book, which is a card sort. I can show you at the moment actually, um, which is these of. Um, which which goes with the book that people can work through those and you can use those with your family and with your work colleagues as well to um, just really help to build awareness and alignment to the values. Um, in, In answer to your question earlier around obsessive compulsive traits and we talked about it being traits if it's aligned to your values and in talking about what are the drivers, sometimes there can be a fine line in this because then there's fight or flight drivers, there's perceived threat drivers. And so sometimes some of these sorts of need for order and control and, and lists and things, if they are driven by fear of um making a mistake or fear of uh, imperfection, let's say, then they become fear-driven. And that's when obsessive-compulsive traits might even tip over into something like like OCD, let's say, potentially. Um, I'm very reticent to use the term disorder. That's why I slipped to saying OCD (laughs) rather than saying it in full because I really want us to move out of conceptualising um, people to feel flawed or not good enough, right? I'm very, while there's certainly a time and place for medication um, that can absolutely help people profoundly um, and certainly a, uh, a, a medical 
element to this um, for the large majority of people who I work with who experience anxiety, it is just part of their magnificent humanity and their deep level of kindness and care to protect their loved ones. Um, but, yes, consider what is driving your behaviour as the most important bit and we want to move out of fear-driven actions and move into values-driven actions. We don't well, want to you, hate I, 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 a lot of people that we know might deal with like teenagers or, or friends or family that suffer from anxiety. And what, what is your advice around when someone is with someone who is this sort of, you can see them escalating into that sort of negative pattern. And, you know, it can either, as you say, spiral into anger or it might be anguish. Um, I, being a fixer and trying to be helpful, I'm just trying to fix the problem or I'll, it's fine, I'll, I'll pay for it or I'll do it. Or, um, or, or sometimes I find myself getting angry and I realize that's because I'm seeing it as a criticism of my, my own parenting, for instance. You know, so the fact that someone else can't cope, I've done something wrong as a parent. So I sometimes react angrily, which is a disaster. Um, what, what is the way when someone's in that mode, if you want to, sort of help them, what, what is the right thing to say or do in that moment when it's kind of building? Yeah, um, really, I mean, uh, whether it's with our children or with our partners or with our friends, one of the most powerful things we can do is um, step one is validate emotions. That means acknowledge the emotions that the other person is experiencing because especially with our kids at the anxiety clinic, <laughs> we do a lot of work with adults, kids and teens. We do a lot of work helping parents, helping teenagers. There's so much challenge out there at the moment. There's so many teens and kids that are doing it incredibly tough. The mind strength method helps all ages. And so the key message here is, when we fix us, when we want to help our loved ones, we can jump all too readily to problem solving. And we jump to problem solving with telling our kids what to do because we know how to help them, right? And, um, and we want to help them and we want to help them as quickly as we possibly can. Um, and so it is our typical go-to to jump to telling them what to do. Um, Sometimes what can happen when we do that is we, I've got three children myself and so I'm very experienced in being told that I have no idea <laughs> and, um, and that I, I don't know what I'm talking about. And so that's absolutely fine because that's a very normal, understandable reaction. The brick wall comes up when, when all, so what's happening in the brain is the amygdala is going bah, bah, bah. it's kind of like this alarm that says listen to me something bad is happening right now and so when a person is hijacked by that amygdala part of their brain they're actually not interested in problem solving they're just gonna fight back or attack back so we want to start with that emotional validation, which serves to quieten that hijacking amygdala part of the brain. And then the more um, the part of the brain that is about collaboration and problem solving opens up more readily. That's when we can jump to step two, which is problem solving and action planning. And when we're working with our kids, it is really helpful to do that with 
asking questions rather than statements because that builds that collaboration and connection. Oh, that's really good advice. So acknowledge, validation and ask questions instead of statements or problem solving. I think that's brilliant. I really like that. It's like trying to, yeah, you see these people trying to negotiate with a toddler in the supermarket. Like it's no time for negotiation. That toddler is not going to respond. Not that I'm comparing my teenagers to toddlers. Um, at least not most of the time. Nor are we comparing our partners, right? No, that was the other thing I really liked at the end of the book, which is kind of jumping a bit, but talking about using the mind strength method in our relationships. I mean, I think for, Firstly, I think a lot of people probably are not aware of maybe what their partner's values are, um, which is why that kind of dreadful but brilliant book, Love Languages, worked so well, because it was a way of people going, oh, so you prefer I say I love you than me, I show I love you or whatever it might be. Um, so I think one thing with a um, sitting down with the cards that you were saying come with a book to go through with your partner or kids to find out what's important to them, because that might explain why they react in a certain way. But you also had something in there about because um, it's it's not really about like we'll talk about positive thinking in a second. But you were saying that you in your relationship, you've got to be cautious of negativity bias, which is a big thing that we all are very guilty of. Or um, So can we talk a little bit about how that might show up in a relationship? So, you know, that you might complain about something instead of trying to do it in a more helpful way. Yeah, definitely. Um, so with relationships, uh, certainly uh, what we recognise is there's there's a couple of mechanisms that take hold just as part of the neuroscience um, of who we are as human beings. Our brain has two processes and one is this negativity bias that we are much more likely to see negatives than see positives. Um, and this is our primitive survival instinct at play. We're hardwired and also socialised as well, but uh, to, to catch the negatives so we don't miss it and so, you know, nothing bad happens. And so that's one thing. The other thing is this um, aspect of our brain called hypervigilance to threat relevant information. So if we have a worry story around fear of being judged negatively, uh, then our brain is going to uh, seek those out more readily in our environment, in uncertain and ambiguous situations. So we just need to be mindful of some of these processes at, at play that can play out in all of our relationships. Um, but certainly the strategies that we were talking about with our children, validation and then problem solving with our end goal in mind and asking open-ended questions to direct a person in the direction that we want can be incredibly helpful with our partners as well as a go-to strategy. Yeah, no, it's great. I think in, in there you talk about um, instead of sort of um, you know looking at your husband and just sort of seething them and saying, oh, you never pay me any attention – which isn't helpful. And, you know, uh, you end up turning into one of those sort of nagging wives that you used to watch and go, I'm never going to be that. And then you are um, to instead maybe doing something positive, like saying, you know, could, could we spend some time together soon? Which is it, it, you're going to get a much better result. You're going to end up hopefully staying married. Um, so I think that well, that's what's great in the book. There's heaps of that. I just want to touch on some of the things and some have spoken about quite a lot in terms of I think this is the sort of section um three, which is, you know, your mind strength toolkit. And there's lots of stuff in there, some we, which we've heard of, but it's written in a different way. So you view it slightly differently. Some things you might not have thought of. So um, 
wanted to talk about uh, a couple of them. So making friends with uncertainty, how do we do that? Like you're saying that, you know, because every, the only thing that is certain is that we're all going to die at some stage. There are things that are likely. Um, how do we actually do that? How do we start making friends with uncertainty? Awareness, really. Awareness of what we're doing and awareness of when we are struggling with uncertainty in a desire to get certainty when there is no certainty. Uh, and that keeps us in fight or flight. It keeps us struggling and it keeps the anxiety alive. And so... When we can build awareness around these processes, it is, it is helpful in and of itself. And so because it's, it's hard, we, we don't sit comfortably with uncertainty and that's why in this world that we live in, there's so much uncertainty. It's very different from the world that we were actually designed to live in as biological beings. So it's about building awareness and and noticing when you're grappling with uncertainty and seeing if you can move out of that and move into some semblance of it's sitting with discomfort. And, and we hate that, don't we? Like we just do anything we can to avoid. We'll run, we'll drink, we'll, you know, shop, we'll gamble. Yeah. Totally right. We'll numb it. We'll, we'll try to numb it. We'll try to numb those unpleasant feelings. And so that's why step one of the method of the mind strength method is so very important in and of itself even though step three is the absolute practical toolkit step one and well every step really because awareness is a tool in and of itself isn't it it is the foundation you know I was was speaking about this only yesterday with my team at the anxiety clinic we had peer uh, supervision we were talking about cases and we were talking about the importance of helping our clients to build awareness around all of these processes. And because, you know, as we're, we, we all um, in my team at the anxiety clinic, we all very much want to, we, we're on a mission to help people to, to well-being as quickly as possible. And that's, that's really why I've written the book is, you know, because that's my therapy in the book and they can, get that book and move to a path of well-being as quickly as possible. But really um, what we were talking about is what can come up is wanting to move people to the toolkit quickly. Um, and But really the power of education, the power of understanding what's going on, understanding what safety behaviours are or those fear-driven actions and understanding the neuroscience of anxiety in and of itself can be is so very helpful and and uh, can be uh, life changing in and of itself. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it is interesting. There's so much of this thing of uh, which is the fight or flight, but just actually sitting in it and being aware that what you're feeling in your body, it's just kind of energy. Like mid lockdown, I remember going for a run and, and being really overwhelmed about not having to see my family and a whole load of stuff. And, you know, my throat closes up or I get tightness in my stomach and almost couldn't breathe, not panic attack, full blown, but that sort of, you could feel it bubbling up. And, and I just stopped and I was like, okay, what are you feeling? You know, okay. You're, you're terrified about this or you're missing this and you're disappointed, but, you know, and then just, as you say, just actually 
almost wallowing in the yuck um, is, is, is helpful. Whereas most of us try not to, we'll do anything, procrastinate or, um, you know, try and be perfect. And I think that's, that's something that all of us have got to do, which is why in, in the back of the book, you talk a lot about mindfulness, which isn't just meditation and yoga. It's, it's about, yeah, being present, but so that you can feel your own body and your own thoughts and understand them. And as you say, be kind to yourself. Definitely. So mindfulness is one of the tools in the Mind Strength Toolkit. And it's so incredible what you did in that moment was stop, breathe, build awareness around the experience that you were having and build acceptance around that experience, as opposed to what we can do from time because the experience is aversive, we want to get rid of it. And what that does is it layers more anxiety over that initial experience and what that can tip into is a panic attack so by you sitting as you said in the in the yuck you know sitting in that aversive experience and having the opportunity to create space to slow your breathing down I talk about this is one of the strategies in the book the the stop strategy taking that long slow out breath and just re-engaging in your surroundings Uh, you were able to circumvent what might have otherwise been escalating into something that was more aversive and more problematic to you. That was a really powerful intervention that you did in that moment and core to that was mindful self-acceptance, observing, allowing your experiences to just be in the present moment, which is what mindfulness is. Yeah, I I like the bit in the book with the breathing because you talk about imagining like, sort of blowing on a, um, on a cup of tea, like a, that sort of slow breath. And as you say, we can trick our brain, like our brains are pretty smart, but we can trick them. And in a way, this book, it's not about trickery, but it is about gaining some control over things that feel out of our control. Um, and, and it, it, I have to say it, it's really useful for not just anxiety and worry, but just in terms of just getting back into ourselves. We tend to just rush through life and finish this and do that. And, and then we've got to do this. And, and we kind of sometimes just stop and think, okay, hang on, where am I at? How am I doing? Can I be doing something nicer to myself? And I know it sounds cheesy and you talked about it in the book about being your own best friend, but we would never be as mean to our friends as we are to ourselves. So explain how can we kind of turn it around in terms of that, like the being your own best friend? Yeah, it's about moving from anxiety into kindness and compassion and moving from agitation and self-flagellation and all of these really mean things that we do. We, we listen to that critical voice inside our mind that tells us that we're not good enough and, and we buy into it. And so when we can build awareness around that and move out of, you know, anxiety, stress, worry and fear into practical and empowered and compassionate action, then we just will flourish and thrive. An example is, you know, one of the, the tools that I talk about, I think, is is about conquering imposter syndrome and um, building confidence, assertiveness and influence. And so that is one of the examples of how can we be, how can we treat our own, uh, treat ourselves as our own best friend? Well, what would we tell our best friend? We would tell our best friend, 
to be assertive and to we would help our, our best friend with strategies on how to stand out for ourselves, which is what assertiveness is. So in the book, um, there's tools on assertiveness and um, internal validation as opposed to a need for external validation uh, and just all sorts of things like that. Um, again, it's noticing when we're letting that critical voice boss us around and uh, buy into those stories and just uh, moving out of that and realigning to what is important to, to you, um, to, to, to all of us, because when we can actually acknowledge that our needs are worth it, that you are worth it, uh, and treat ourselves with more respect, um, with clarity of what that means, what is important to you, then it has this really positive feedback loop that makes us more buoyant and more motivated to engage in those strategies more. And that's exactly what we want. We just want to be a little bit less crap or a lot less crap. Um, thank you, um, Jody. You've been fab. Um, I've really enjoyed having you on the show. I've got like stacks of notes. I could have just kept on chatting to you, but I know you are very important, so I will let you go. But um, I'm going to put all the details on the podcast about the book and how people can get in touch with the Anxiety Clinic. And there's loads of useful resources in both. So um, I hope you will come back on the show again. I would be delighted to. It's been so beautiful chatting with you and with your listeners. I can't wait to help people through the book or directly. It's an absolute joy. So thank you. Fab, if you've enjoyed the episode, please give it some five-star love. Over and out. That's all the time we have. This podcast is brought to you by the fine people, well, me, at thinrichhappy.com. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, be sure to subscribe. Or if you really enjoyed this episode, please leave a review, which will help other people find the podcast. For extra podcast goodies, you can visit BeLessCrap.com.